0: This podcast is brought to you by Erickson Immigration Group. Welcome to Immigration Nerds. Today, I'm joined by Masha Rumer, author of the new book, Parenting with an Accent. In this book, she explores how immigrants honor their heritage, navigate setbacks, and chart new paths for their children. This book encapsulates many things. It's part memoir, part interview series, where she conducts over 60 interviews, including academic research from social science and migration experts. Parenting with an accent captures the true immigrant experience, which I'm excited to dive into today. So thank you, Masha, for coming on.
1: And thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Thank you. Yeah, let's start from the beginning, your background. So you're originally from Russia. When did you move to America?
1: Yes, yeah, so I was born in Leningrad, now St. Petersburg. Um, and I moved to the United States just a year after the Soviet Union ceased to exist. It was no longer there. And I moved to the Bay Area as a teenager.
0: Okay. And as a teenager, that is quite a pivotal time in your life. A lot of changes that's happening socially, internally, physically, emotionally, and also you are being inundated with a completely new culture. In your book, you talk about trying to understand different slangs, like let's hook up and kick it, or simply having the cultural reference as other Americans, like not even watching Sesame Street and not understanding cultural references like that. So how were you able to navigate these social environments during this time?
1: That is such a great question. And it was definitely hard. I mean, I don't know if there was any, like the best age to immigrate, but I would definitely say that being an immigrant and an adolescent, this is definitely not an easy, not an easy stage to be in. It definitely took me a while, and I learned only later that it's actually a fairly common experience at this age, and you've been supported by some research that it's it's a tricky age to do it. But um yes, it was, you know I've never traveled to a different country until I came to the United States. Um, I was lucky in the sense that my family was able to like fly and just land in Alaska refuel um look at the expensive burgers and then continue on to San Francisco um but people who came from the Soviet Union shortly before we did had to go um you know basically surrender their their citizenship which is also what we did but they had to stay for months in like refugee camps in Italy in Austria and then be resettled somewhere in the United States and they didn't quite know where so we didn't have that um but it was still very tricky obviously when you come to a new environment Obviously, you don't know the language, even though you think you do. maybe there's social norms. there is all kinds of different slang. There's obviously the poverty. you know, some people come with having some means, um others, like in my case, we did not have anything. My parents had to relearn, you know the their old textbooks. My father was an, is an engineer from scratch. My mother had to change careers, um take lessons. They all studied English diligently. Um yes yeah, so and at the same time trying to make sure that our family survived and didn't completely run out of money. We had a few networks that helped us along the way, but it was definitely very tricky. Um you know we we started working right away like delivering newspapers. I described that in the book. Like the four of us me and my brother and my parents would, you know, get into our old Buick and deliver newspapers often to my classmates who would watch me from the window. Um, as we tried to figure out the, the address system and, and the suburban environment. Um, that was certainly not easy. And I did actually study English um, since I was in, I think, in third grade. But when I came here, it turned out to be like for a lot of immigrants, like that's not the English that's spoken here. First of all, it's not British English, it's American English. But also when you're learning in a different country, often the focus is on comprehension and reading and writing, but not necessarily speaking and slaying, like, Yeah. Slang is like completely not, it was not part of the picture when I was studying. Um, I did learn a lot of English also by translating um, song lyrics by the Beatles, but that (laughs) didn't turn out to be very helpful when I came. (laughs) Yeah, like I knew a lot of the words, but I didn't even understand what they meant half the time. But it's not something you can use when you're trying to become friends with your classmates, like quote a song, like under the sea or something. So it did take quite a bit of time, Um, but eventually, you know, um, yeah. I, I adapted to to my best ability.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And uh, could you describe maybe the the treatment because this is the early nineties and you're coming from former Soviet Union. I was wondering how welcoming that treatment was during that time, or did you have challenges along the way?
1: Um, yes, yeah, so at the time, it was actually not not the not the easiest time for California. Um, it was certainly the recession in the early 90s, and at that time, um, the then governor, Pete Wilson, was trying to basically exclude uh, immigrants, and he was hunting down you know, undocumented immigrants. So he uh, passed Proposition Y87, um, where he tried to deny um, undocumented immigrants all kinds of public, I mean, public education and uh, medical care. And it actually passed. And there was, I remember coming and seeing video footage of like this, the quote unquote illegals running across the border. And, you know, this voice saying, is this, you know, this is where you want California to be. They're coming, they're coming like this, like fear mongering. And at the time I mean, I didn't know about documentation. I just knew that I was an outsider. And I certainly associated more with the people that were also from somewhere else, as opposed to people who've lived here for generations. Um, and I did notice that, um, you know, as much as I could, that, you know, immigrants in my classroom and ESL, English or second language classroom, weren't always treated well, even by our ESL teacher. I think maybe it was an exception because California and the Bay Area is so diverse and there's so many people from somewhere else here. But I do remember later on, I realized there was a sign above the blackboard saying, Welcome to California, and I go back home. Wow! And I didn't realize what that meant, but like a few months later, I was like, "Wow, I wonder if that means that he's kind of not into us." And I remember we had this teacher who was, (laughs) yeah, he wasn't really into like. You'd be like, "Stop speaking whatever language you're speaking,"
0: Um, and he was the ESL teacher. Yeah,
1: yeah. It's like, dude, why did you get that kind of (laughs) job? Right? It's a, it's a little unusual, right?
0: Profession. Uh.
1: (laughs) I would, I would think so. Yeah, it was. um, I would say it was an anomaly, though. Um. Um, but, but yeah, it was, I mean, that, that feeling of like being unwelcome it definitely was resonating throughout. It maybe the proposition 187 that I mentioned didn't last very long at all. It was overturned, but at the same time, it did have an effect. It created this sense of mistrust and fear um, of anybody that's different and, you know, that We've seen this kind of rhetoric repeat time and time again, even in recent years, uh, certainly. And it has an effect on people, whether they realize it or not. It makes people, immigrants, feel you know, concerned about their safety, concerned about passing their languages down, speaking their languages in public. And at the same time, those who are native born um, might you know, fall for this type of rhetoric and, and become concerned and certainly feel like immigrants might be the scapegoat that they're looking for.
0: Right. During your interview process, You interviewed so many academic scholars and then also everyday immigrants. And there was a running theme between the differences in culture when it came to the collective versus the individualistic uh, societies. And that was quite a transition. I I know one, uh, Karakama, uh, he he, he brings in the Mm -hmm. term familismo. Uh, which is a uh, intense loyalty to the family and that interconnectedness that is you know uh, deep in Latin American culture. But to balance that with American culture that's more individualistic. So have you found that clash to be similar in your experience between the collective oriented societies versus the individualistic?
1: Absolutely. And that's such a great question. Yes. um, I mean, I I will add that, of course, sometimes this collectivism was was forced upon us Mm -hmm. um, in the former Soviet Union because every like the individual was bad and you had to be, you know, everything is shared property, Mm -hmm. everything is collective. So that's like the other extreme. But the mentality is, yes, when you grow up in certain communities, we don't have this like rugged individualism traditionally been prized in, in the United States, or at least that's the narrative that we hear, um, and people rely so much more on um, on their community, on their family members, on the extended family, on their relationships and friendships. I sp- spoke, and I, I read about this and spoke to others, including to this wonderful um, licensed psychologist who practices in Queens in New York, um, Jaime Carcamo is his name. He was actually... One of the reasons, one of the ways I found him is that um, he works a lot with immigrant populations, um, Latinx populations, but also others, and he was involved in training other psychologists in responding to the 9-11 attacks Mm. um, after it happened, and he also helped um, first responders and additionally um, immigrants that were participating in the cleanup of the World Trade Center site and some of them were undocumented so they were like bearing the brunt of you know the aftermath and as i call them in the book their unsung heroes because there were so many of them and they haven't there hasn't been as much written about them and their efforts in uh, trying to get you know new york and the country back on track and he was one pioneering in you know these treatment methods of ptsd and so on but yes he he brought up familismo which is a concept in a lot of latin american cultures that the individual is not necessarily as prized as, as uh, the community. I mean, it's so, certainly very important, but the community is of utmost importance. Mm. And it's certainly something I grew up with as well. Um, you know, when you do something, you don't always think of how can it benefit me, but um, will I bring shame to my community? Mm. Will my mother or my auntie speak ill of me at, some, at the next party, right? What will people think? And that's certainly a big part of you know, my upbringing as well. Uh, for better or worse. I think there's so many positives to it. Um, even before the pandemic, I think there's, um, and particularly in parenting, but in other ways, I think there's so much isolation um, in our culture um, and in the Western culture. And it's, you know, you know, commutes, you know, jobs, moving back and forth, you know, no, not a lot of social support networks, for example, be it with childcare care um, or, um, you know, leave f- from, from employment when we needed. Um, so that's something I've, I've certainly encountered even in my relationships. Um, for example, a lot of people from the former Soviet union, which I can speak to, speak to their parents almost daily, if not more than once a day, but a lot of other, a lot of people that I spoke to that were born here don't necessarily do that. You know, you're expected to leave the home when you're 18, um, kind of make your own life. You don't necessarily, you're not expected to speak as often to your family, but, um, in a lot of immigrant communities, that's not the case. And for better or worse, I mean, that's a lot of people live with that kind of shame and being always controlled by the. I, I can even bring the the in Kanto, right? Example of the grandma kind of being the, the the force um, of the of the family, and that can be certainly have its positive and negative sides as well.
0: Right. You talk about keep what works and discard what doesn't. So how do you go about this selection process?
1: Well, that's that's exactly that immigrants and their kids um, are in this unique position that we often feel sort of homeless. We don't necessarily feel like we belong, like we can go back to our birth country and feel like our language might be a little bit rusty or we don't necessarily fit in anymore there. Um, and people can tell even if we don't know, do know some of the language, but at the same time, there is this feeling of being an outsider and a lot of people that I spoke to at psychologists. Um, also confirm that just because you know you might be fluent in English, and just because you already have citizenship or some kind of documentation or green card it doesn't mean you always feel whatever American really means. Mm-hmm. Um, There are so many nuances there, so many of those, like you mentioned, Sesame Street, which I describe in the book, like you might not have the same childhood experiences or the formative experiences um, or a lot of the traumas. I mean, so many of us have traumas that might be just different, but the trauma of immigration and losing your home um, and having to kind of restart from scratch and even changing your identity and languages depending on who you speak to and where um, and trying to find your tribe. So those are all very... Challenging, you know, situations and nuances, and and also when an immigrant ends up having kids, then there's this flood of experiences and opportunities of how do I raise my child? What language do I speak to her? Um, what traditions do I use? And sometimes we, you know, want to keep a lot of our upbringing, but at the same time, some of those aspects are something that we want to not keep any longer. Um, for, for me certainly it was like a, a decision-making process it's not even so much conscious necessarily like I wanted to keep so much of the the food I grew up with and the, the movies and the cartoons and um some of the experiences that that are not even as as simple to describe as like a plate in front of you but other aspects of it like extreme maybe ex- extreme um com- communal based child rearing is not necessarily something I want like the the shaming right it's part of the upbringing in many countries like I mentioned including mine is um, everybody's kind of looking after you and helping so there's that community but at the same time you might be like scolded by somebody on the street for not dressing a certain way or like crying if a child is crying in a public place the mother might be shamed for that so to speak um that so yeah and that's something I, I'm not not a huge fan of so I um try not to not to do that then um so that's that's one of the examples but that's also a position of i guess um it's, it's extremely exciting to be able to recreate your rituals all over again you mm-hmm. know sometimes with your partner um, if you're raising children or if you're in a relationship you can create a whole set of new dynamics and traditions
0: right Is a mix how of you plan to socialize together
1: yeah old and the new and that's actually quite empowering and mm-hmm. that's uh, there are a lot of benefits to that one of the people I spoke to for that is uh, Professor Philip Kasinitz who works at the um, City University of New York Graduate Center, and he is um, a presidential scholar of sociology there. He used to be a, the head of the department there as well. So he studies this phenomenon of picking and choosing quite a lot. He, um, he wrote, actually co-wrote a book called Inheriting the City, where he described these observations he's made about children of immigrants and um, those who came at a very young age as immigrants in the New York area. And he says that it's a very empowering thing to pick pick and choose. Maybe there's a lot of sexism in the old traditions. So some children of immigrants leave that behind. Um, or maybe there's this in- extreme focus on education and survival and greediness, no matter what. And if you put those together, it can really benefit you. There's even something called a second generation advantage uh, mm-hmm. that he refers to that children of immigrants tend to often Outdo um usually outdo their parents and a lot of markers of success like graduation rates, um you know English fluency, um school grades and um, often they even outdo their peers uh, that were born in the United States just because of a lot of these qualities of having to reinvent themselves.
0: That's awesome. Uh, you you touched upon it a little earlier about language and how important that is in culture and maintaining the culture preserving culture. Um, how do you manage a bilingual household? Like, how do you convey to your children the importance of the mother tongue and being able to talk to relatives? I I remember I was reading a portion where you was trying to negotiate with your daughter when reading Goldilocks and the Three Bears. And so uh, I guess the term for bear is Mishka. Mishka? Yeah, oh, that's right. Yeah, Mishka. Yeah, right. it's like, say Mishka, Mishka. It's like, no, I don't want to say it. it's bear. And you're kind of- like, leave
1: me alone, tr- mother. Yeah, trying <laughs>
0: to like negotiate to, you know, teach the language. Um, so when children are not immersed in the culture outside the house, you know, how do you manage that?
1: Um, It is so difficult. Um, Yeah, just like you pointed out that pretty much sums it up. Like, I mean, the, the tricky thing about bilingualism is that historically, and that's something that I completely did not expect to learn in my research, the native language tends to like disappear after three generations. So the immigrants speak it, their kids tend to be bilingual more or less. And the grandchildren of immigrants tend to usually not speak the language at all. So this is a huge hurdle to overcome, right? It's almost like all these forces are working against us because there's so much emphasis on, you know, being a monolingual, not monolingual, but an English speaker, um, you know, acculturating, which we used to call assimilating um, and trying to not necessarily accept or honor the roots and the culture that we come from or our ancestors come from. Um, I mean, there's some people will say like, oh, well, you know, you have burritos or Chinese food outside. Doesn't that mean we're like a multicultural society? Well, no, I mean, food is food is not really it. The food is food, right? There's so much more to a culture and to one's heritage and history and ancestry, right? Um, so that's, I mean, we're working, we're up against a lot of challenges. Um, and I know that speaking my language was very important for me as a parent, and it was really important for me to teach that to my kids. and. Obviously, bilingualism has lots of advantages that are cognitive, like multitasking, and um, maybe even some studies show there's greater empathy, Um, you know, you're able to see the world from different points of view, but to immigrants like myself, it's it's not even so much the benefits, it's the ability to see the world from from the parents' perspective and to connect to our ancestors, to speak to the grandparents, to maybe travel to the country of origin and meet all those cousins that maybe you've just seen pictures of like my, my kids and my husband have never been to russia and i've only been back once to be honest um i mean it's also politically kind of unstable so i'm not sure when that this is going to happen to be honest um but at some point i would certainly love to go um but it's really hard to teach them um some people have a slightly easier time especially if they live entrenched in that language community mm. um like if both parents if they're if it's a two-parent household they speak the same language around the children you know only that language that's easier to do um there's also an approach called one parent um, one language or one um, person one language opol and that tends to be pretty successful like if you know one one parent speaks one language and the other one speaks another one to the child exclusively people say um, there's research that shows it's got a 75 percent success rate or so hmm.
0: um, i can see there but again be it's, competition between the parents because like if right. the child like prefers one language over the other it's just like oh okay i'm favored <laughs> right right favored.
1: and there's so yeah. many you're totally right there's so many <laughs> psychological dynamics there. there's um i mean it's almost like a competition and there's never a balance of those two languages like mm-hmm. especially if you have i'm the one of the family i spoke to is um One dad um, speaks Spanish, he's from El Salvador, and the other dad, it's a two-dad household, he speaks uh, Russian, and the English, they speak English with each other, but they speak their native languages to their daughter. And of course, she's learning them gradually. She's still very little. But once she goes out in the world, she will hear that English is the dominant language and they're already prepared for that, that she will prefer English because that's what she's hearing all around her with her peers. She doesn't necessarily want to be different and stand out. When I tried to do this one pair in one language, it became difficult because at one point, the child might start resisting it because Mm -hmm. they're in this monolingual environment outside. And it might be hard to find a childcare provider or daycare or preschool that focuses on that language exclusively. It's so that which is we didn't find anything Russian like that where we live. So mm-hmm. it was i tried kind of like not I wouldn't say forcing, but I was insistent. No, please speak this language. I was begging her, I was negotiating, trying to bribe her, and she just would not have it, even though she was pretty young. So I decided to step back and give it up and um still you know speaking to her, having the background noise of Russian, but I didn't force her to do it, to speak it or to read those books. And eventually she just came back to it in and, and just a few months. And, you know, we picked up where we left off and um, they're bilingual. That I mean, obviously English is stronger, but they are um, learning and they're interested in Russian and hopefully it'll just keep growing. And the one thing mm-hmm. I will say about yeah. that one parent, one language is that it's also um, one of the biggest reasons I wrote this book is there's, I didn't find a lot of information or a lot of support in like the language but also just the identity of being an immigrant that's out there mm-hmm. um i think there were like a lot of books on how to raise a bilingual child but they were so strict um it almost felt like if you do not use this method you are not it's not going to work out for you so why even try and parents are overworked as is you know we're always feeling guilty about something um, and a lot of times we simply are not able to stick to that one parent one language some parents do and that's wonderful but not everybody can especially if you go to you know look at people who are. Um, you know, new arrivals or who maybe are socioeconomically disadvantaged, or they're not able to hire nanny or send their kid to some kind of a special language daycare preschool, or who are working round the clock and multiple jobs, and they do not have the resources to keep watching their child's language, or to nurture that one parent, one language approach, or to teach mm-hmm. them the ABCs when they're like completely exhausted at the end of the day. Um, so a lot of times we just mix our languages when we speak. And that also works. Maybe it's not necessarily as extremely effective, but it can still work. Um, and that's partly what I've been using at home a lot of the times as well.
0: With many kids, even people who are, are born and raised in, in the same country, culture kind of finds you naturally. Like the older you get, you kind of go back to those previous lessons that your mom and dad taught you. It's like, oh, wow, I'm doing the same thing that my mom did. Or I'm like raising my children how my parents raised me. I thought I would never do that. But now I see the value. In what they were teaching me. So it kind of comes full circle over time, and you, you see why your parents did the things that they did. And you know, you keep some of it, and other stuff is like, okay, I got older, and I still think that's wrong. <laughs> right, <laughs> or it's right. not that beneficial. But a lot more times than not, you, you, you come back around and you see the value in, in their teaching. So um, that's that's always a, a part of it. I did have a, a silly question. Sure. Um, why do Russian women believe children are always cold? <laughs> oh that, my goodness! That's re- reoccurring in the book. <laughs>
1: like... I don't know. I I wish <laughs> I, like, I wish somebody could tell me, but I'm one of those women. I think they're always cold. It's, I, I have no idea why. Maybe where did that stem from? <laughs> it's maybe it's because it's a very cold climate, especially yeah. where I grew up. It was like 60th parallel. It's like very close. It's like the same level as like Oslo in Norway um, and Helsinki. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we like. I think there was like heating issues. Obviously, there was. um, You know, Russia has like had multiple. You know, like wars, like World War One and Mm Two, and a lot of times people lived in evacuation. My family members, the men would be, you know, fighting in the war, Mm -hmm. and the women and would be like trying to be evacuated somewhere, and there was Mm -hmm. often no no heat. Um, For example, my grandma was a teenager when. World War II broke out and she like and her family scrambled or part of the family, the rest were unfortunately um, murdered. They got on the train uh, to go East um, to escape and evacuate like a lot of the families um, did. And when they arrived there, they had lived, they were like living in a tiny little room that somebody was sharing in the house that they were sharing and they were evacuees, so they, they were staying there and they had no heat. So my grandma would tell me how the, the walls would be covered in ice at night wow. when they slept Jeez. and they didn't have any shoes so it's I mean so you hear like a lot of you know when I was your age I walked to school in the snow uphill both ways and I mean in this yeah. case it was definitely true but one of the things people often ask me about is why do you guys have like a rug on your wall and we do mm-hmm. hang rugs on our walls like it's an actual rug that you put on the floor but it's on the wall I think it looks it's really pretty keep in the
0: warmth, but, but
1: it's to keep but, in the warmth, right? I mean, yeah. some people are like, haha, it's still like camouflage your Christmas sweater. Well, that's that's true. You know? <laughs> uh, and it looks I think it looks pretty. It's a little kitschy, but mm-hmm. it's, I, I'm used to it. But it's also to trap the warmth and wearing indoor shoes in the house. Like I chase after my children every day. Like, did you put your slippers on? And usually mm-hmm. they forget, but um, it's the, they're sick of hearing me. But i I will probably never stop doing it until they move out of my house.
0: That's good. Good for you. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Wow. No, because that was a reoccurring theme because you talked about a particular cocktail party where an um, American guy, he, he brought out his, his baby and, and the baby didn't have any, you know, hat or ear buffs, and all the Russian women attacked him. It's was like, what are you doing? He needs to put on put clothes. Where's his hat? That's and like right. he rushed him out of there. <laughs> yeah, right. they, like chase the poor guy
1: out. Up from, because yeah. it was like already <laughs> evening time and the baby was like in this onesie and he was like, look at my new baby. And instead of the women like cooing and saying, oh, that's such a cute baby, they, they literally chased them back. Like, what is cat? Oh my God, he's gonna freeze to death. Like how, they, like they literally like pushed him in. And I remember even, I mean, I've, I've lived in the United States most of my life at this point, but I remember I went to see um, the snow with my own family um, recently and it was really cold. I mean, it was like huge snowfall in um, Northern California and we're walking. By this park, and everybody's wearing these mittens, you know, hats, like multiple layers and jackets. And then I see a family, and there's a little girl walking in this princess dress in short sleeves. Oh wow, And I'm like, and immediately That's whenever exact. I see this, I always like try to lunge and like, throw some of my own clothes on children like that when I see them. And I, I obviously I don't do that because that would be like a crazy person doing that, right? So I don't do that. But I turn to my daughter. I'm like, Oh my goodness did you see that did you see that she's not wearing she's not dressed appropriately she's she's gonna get a cold she's gonna catch mm-hmm. a cold and then i'm like oh i wonder if they heard what i said that would be really bad and then i'm like no i don't think they heard me because if they were russian they would <laughs> they would not be doing this mm-hmm. either so um no, they would not be
0: doing that no no <laughs> i'm
1: sure that the girl was fine but it's, it's hard to yeah. shake that um, but i still would not recommend short sleeves in the snow
0: no uh, you or I? Um, yeah. <laughs> we don't come from a cold uh, climate, but <laughs> I'm the same way. Uh, no, that was just like a funny piece. That I was like, "Wow, this is a reoccurring theme yeah. that I wanted to ask about." Um, but you you navigate this book in a very interesting way, and it's deeply personal. So you you have the research. Um, you have the interviews, but it's also a memoir of, of a sense of your journey of moving to America, learning the culture, and now in a position, having children passing down the culture and, and deciding what values, but with you and your husband, like what's to, to maintain, what should we keep, what's the gender roles, uh, and all of that in, in a new environment. So I really recommend people to get their hands on this and learn a little bit about your journey and see uh, how it relates to theirs. Cause there's so many similarities. Cause you talk to, people, immigrants from Africa, Asia, you know, from the Middle East, and it's strikingly similar upbringing. Now, maybe the specifics are different, but in terms of maybe the conservatism in their families, or there's a one-way, my way, or the highway, I say it and you do it, there's no negotiations. That was a a theme as well. So I think uh, wherever part of the world that you come from that you can uh relate to uh this book here. So I I thank you, Masha, for writing this and and, and joining. And where can people find more information about this book? Where can they get it and get in contact?
1: Uh, sure. So the book is sold pretty much most places books are sold. It's uh likely in your local bookstore, which I always recommend. Um obviously it's, you know, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Powell's, um, It's also available in Kindle or eBook format or look. It's also available in audio format. And audio format is actually really cool because I got to participate in the selection process of the reader um there were a few oh
0: so you did you narrate i did not luckily i
1: did did not narrate it because i don't know if people Mm -hmm. (laughs) want to listen to me talk for like seven seven hours or however long um i would (laughs) thank you thank you um but she the the actress there were a few actors auditioning and also with different accents as well which was really cool i had no idea this is how it works on book recording but um i just love the voice of the actress that ended up reading the book and she is it turned out a child of immigrants as well. So the topic really resonated with her personally. And I think you can, you can just hear that in her voice. I mean, she has a, just a gorgeous voice, but she, the way she presents it, it just really resonates with her. Um, so I know that I've, I have certainly was just a huge fan of her recording and I've been hearing from people as well. So there's all kinds of formats out there. And uh, if people want to learn a little bit more about the book and um, some events that are coming up, um, it's uh, just my name, um, MashaRumor.com, M-A-S-H-A r-u-m-e-r.com
0: perfect well Masha when part two comes out you're gonna to have to come back to us and we're gonna talk about it
1: it would be my <laughs> pleasure and thank you so much for having me on today I really enjoyed all of your questions and, and your feedback it's it, I'm, I'm very honored thank you very much
0: follow Immigration Nerds on Twitter at I M M Nerds, and Erickson Immigration Group on LinkedIn to join in the conversation. I'm Ian Gaines. See you next week.